If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 748. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Purchase one or 20 classes there. Keeps the podcast free of charge. You've already heard about that. There's all kinds of great stuff at McClanahan Academy. If you like the podcast, you'll like the Academy. And it's a win-win. You get great content and you help keep this show free of charge. You can also go to brianmclanahan.com, Click on the support tab. You can click on the little heart button under this video. The super thanks button if you like the podcast on YouTube. You can support it that way or go to anchor.fm. You can become a member there. All kinds of great ways to support the show financially. Also, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Great gifts for Christmas. Get one or more of my books. Amazon.com has them all. So those are all great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a text review or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Anchor actually has a way to do that now on Spotify. So if you listen to it on Spotify, you can now leave a text review. Leave those text reviews. They help people decide if they're going to like the show. Also, leave a comment on YouTube. That helps the algorithm. Watch it as far as you can. That also helps the algorithm, gets more people interested in the show. And share it around on social media. I know a lot of you all do that, and that does also help increase the audience. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. I said we're going to do some listener-generated episodes in this last week of the year. And this is a listener-generated episode sent to me by a listener of the show. And it's an article that was in Politico uh, on James K. Polk. Now, I've got a great class on the presidents at American Academy, American presidents. I talk about Polk there. I have this very interesting relationship as far as a historian with James K. Polk. And I'll tell the story. When I was an undergraduate in college, I really liked James K. Polk. And this was before Polk was trendy. He became trendy in the last, say, decade or so because there's been a couple of new biographies written about Polk. Um, and Polk is really the embodiment of the way that historians think about the presidency now. Now, when I was an undergraduate, that wasn't the case. In fact, there was very little. I mean, there, there was a there was, of course, some, some biographies on James K. Polk. Um, the Sellers biographies were, were important. Also, there was a book by David Pletcher um, on American diplomacy that was good with Polk. There was Norman Grabner's Empire on the Pacific. There were several different books, most of them focusing on the diplomatic element of the Polk administration. Of course, there was some literature out there on the war with Mexico, a lot of that. But Polk was still kind of a fringe president. And you had this general interpretation in the historical profession that Polk was aggressive, that Polk was a bad president, that he was not in line with the way the founding generation thought about the presidency. He was much more of an imperialist. 
uh, not just abroad, but also at home and the way he thought about the administration. And so I took that, that message and flipped it on his head. And in fact, when I, was, when I was an undergraduate, I wrote a couple of papers on James K. Polk uh, for research seminars and other things that uh, were very complimentary of James K. Polk. And I remember, again, the professors I had as an undergraduate, they looked at this as uh, you know, something that was out of the norm because everything was very much in line with a negative assessment of the Polk administration. I, in fact, thought Polk was a great president when I was an undergraduate. And a lot of that had to do with, again, how I conceptualize the presidency. The president's supposed to get a job done. He comes into office. He does X, Y, and Z. He gets out of office. Um, he had this vision, this young, young America, this group of young, you know, we have this young American expansionist vision. I was, you know, very much, because I'm in my teens and tw early 20s, I'm very much in line with that. I like that idea. And then I went to graduate school and I worked with Clyde Wilson. And my perspective on Polk changed a lot because of Calhoun. And that's, I think, the, the interesting thing about this. Now, Calhoun wasn't necessarily in line with James K. Polk, and uh, he was very critical of Polk, particularly Polk's war with Mexico. Now, Polk is a fascinating figure for a variety of reasons. And this piece I'm going to get into at Politico, it's not a long piece, but it goes through Polk's record as president, and it's very complimentary. Look, I could have written this piece when I was an undergraduate. Because I would have done the exact same thing. But I'm going to be critical of it today in certain parts of it. Particularly some of the language he uses, which is just stupid. But I'm going to be critical of it in certain parts of it. But I'm also going to explain why I can understand somebody wrote this piece. Now, the piece is a, is a comparison between Biden and Polk. And that's a big stretch. What they're trying to do here is say, here you had this great president, James K. Polk. Because... Zeitz, who's the author of this, clearly thinks James K. Polk was a great president. And here you have this great president in Joe Biden. Now, again, that's a stretch. Biden, I think, at the end of the day, now historians are going to rank him high because he's a Democrat and the left likes to rank their own people high in these presidential rankings. That's why the rankings are a joke. Most historians are leftists, and so they're going to like Joe Biden. At the end of the day, I think Joe Biden... Uh, is not the worst president in American history, not even close. Uh, but Biden should be in the bottom part of the rankings. I mean, all these modern American presidents should. They abuse power, and Biden has done that. We know that the Biden administration has abused power tremendously behind the scenes. That's this new Twitter dump that's coming out. And, of course, we've seen that with Democrats all over the place, you know, in states as well, that the censorship on social media, if it's happening on Twitter, we know it's happening on Facebook. We know it's happening on the other platforms. We know it's happening on YouTube. We know it's happening anywhere that the left controls the narrative and they can get the information out. They're not going to let things squeeze out that they don't like, or at least they're going to throttle them down. They can't say, they won't say, well, we, we ban that stuff. We allow it to go through, but they throttle it back. And we know this happens all the time. We see it particularly with big accounts that are quote-unquote conservative, they get throttled back quite a bit. So the left is certainly trying to control the narrative, and they do it through the mainstream media. They do it through what they choose not to publish in newspapers and on television news shows. It's always been this way. 
Your bias comes out in what you choose to talk about, what you choose not to talk about, what you choose to publish and not publish. That's certainly bias. I mean, even take this to the historical profession. What historian chooses to write about and do research on shows you their biases every single time. And how they write about it shows you their biases, of course, too. So uh, let's get into this Zeiss piece. It's at Politico again. And the title is The President Who Did It All in One Term and What Biden Could Learn From Him, Joshua Zeiss, The President Who Did It All in One Term. Now, did Polk accomplish everything he set out to do in one term? Again, I've made that claim before in my life. Polk did everything he said he was going to do. Is this necessarily true? Or were some of these things done before he became president? Were some of these things done not as he said he would do when he's running for president. I mean, so what is the case with James K. Polk? So the piece says, it was never James K. Polk's intention to run for president. A former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Polk had served a single two-year term as governor of Tennessee, then a largely ceremonial and toothless role, but lost both his re-election race and a subsequent comeback bid. Effectively, his political aspirations had stalled out. He hoped that he might reboot his career by winning the second spot in 1884, under the presumptive Democratic nominee, former President Martin Van Buren. Then things got strange. Many Southern Democrats were ardent expansionists with designs to build an empire for slavery that stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, let me just take that statement for a second here. Yes, there were Southern Democrats who wanted to expand. Was their expansion, was their motivation simply driven by an expansion of slavery? No. Was slavery part of it? Well, Jefferson Davis would explain why that was the case, because you're diffusing it. You're not necessarily expanding slavery. You're bringing it from one state to another. That doesn't increase the number of slaves. It removes them from one state and puts them into another. That's not increasing slavery. Increasing slavery would be things like importing slaves or natural birth rate, which you were going to see anyways. In fact, American slaves had the highest natural birth rate of any slave population pretty much in the history of the world. Um, so the, the expansion of slavery was happening naturally. If you kept them bottled up in, say, South Carolina or Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi, the birth rate would still be there and it would still naturally expand. So if you move it somewhere else, you're not really expanding the numbers necessarily. This is the argument that was made. And it wasn't so certain that any of these areas could simply maintain a type of agricultural system that slavery required. Now, Southerners were working on a way to try to make slavery more profitable in other ways. They were looking at industrial uh, slavery, looking at uh, other methods of slavery that you could use in, say, a dry climate or somewhere else. But regardless, um, the Western expansion was driven by Southern desire to have the Pacific. They wanted access to Pacific ports, just like anyone else. In fact, this is why we got the Gadsden Purchase, so we could build a transcontinental railroad through the South, because it was the easier method to do it. People forget this. We went through the northern route, and we had to go through the Rockies, which was tough, right? Go around Utah. I mean, this was not easy. The southern route was a lot easier, and this is why Jefferson Davis, as Secretary of War, wanted the Gadsden Purchase. And we got it. Now, Texas is interesting. And they bring up, you know, Texas. Um, and there were people like Abel Upshur and John C. Calhoun 
as Secretary of State, who had made statements that adding Texas would add another slave state and that this would be an important part of uh, adding uh, a, another ally in the South to the American Federal Republic. Now, why is it Southerners would want that? Well, again, it comes down to what the North was pushing for a political economy and what the South was pushing for a political economy. The North wanted higher protective tariffs, federally funded internal improvements, central banking. If you look at Polk's legislative agenda, and of course Zeitz is going to get into that, it's very much alien to what Northerners would have wanted, particularly Northern Whigs. So you have, you can say, well, it's all about slavery. Slavery was hiding something else. It was the desire to have more states that would support a political economy that was in line with an agricultural limited government federal republic. That's what Southerners wanted to maintain. And if they didn't get more states, guess what? They were going to lose in the Congress and they were going to lose overall and they weren't going to keep that. Not just slavery, but the entire system that they advocated. So this, when you say things like build an empire for slavery, well, no, it's not an empire for slavery. It's an empire that included slavery, but of course it had these other things along with it. And if you look at the Confederate Constitution, um, if it was simply a copy of the U.S. model, I mean, ex an exact copy, but protected slavery, you can make a case that all they really concerned about, all they were really concerned about, was slavery. But when you look at the innovations they did in it, which is prohibiting federal fund and internal improvements, which is prohibiting um, protective tariffs, when you look at what they did, then you realize that there was this issue of slavery was... Um, as Jefferson Davis or others said, the occasion, not the main cause. The main cause was a constitutional debate over the powers of the central government. It had been that way from the 1790s. In fact, this piece gets some things wrong historically, and that's one of them. Integral to that plan was statehood for Texas, which had broken away from Mexico and declared independence. Van Buren was tepid on the issue. His main opponent, Louis Cass of Michigan, was not. When the convention repeatedly deadlocked, delegates turned and said to Polk, who emerged as the first dark horse candidate in American presidential history. He didn't seek the nomination, but he gladly accepted it. Now, what, he, what uh, Zeitz fails to point out here is Lewis Cass. Um, Lewis Cass was what they called a doughface. Now, we hadn't gotten to the war with Mexico yet. That comes later. Lewis Cass wanted to admit Texas. Uh, Lewis Cass would also be one of the first ones to promote something called popular sovereignty because he thought when we organize territory, it needs the people of the territory need to decide the position of slavery in the territory. But he's from Michigan. Uh, General Cass, they called him. He was a you know a military officer. But uh, Van Buren and, and Clay had actually cut a deal where they weren't going to talk about Texas. They were going to leave foreign policy out and they were going to focus simply on banking and tariffs, and federally funded internal improvements. And Van Buren was fine with that. We were going to get the American public to decide on these issues. But Cass wanted a foreign policy plank, and so did Polk. Polk was at least fine with it. And so that's what we got. And the thing was, is that the piece doesn't point out here, um, that Polk, the, the platform called for 5440 or fight. In other words, we were going to take all of Oregon, are we going to fight Great Britain for it? We were also going to, of course, settle the Texas issue. That was going to be a big deal. Um, so Polk had certain 
foreign policy goals that the Democrat Party was in line with. Who's Polk supporters of Whig nominee Henry Clay asked mockingly. Their candidate, one of the most prominent public men in American life, seemed like the formidable favorite against a relatively unknown political washup. But in a close election, Polk, a slaveholder and full-throated expansionist, won, aided by 15,000 voters in New York who cast their ballots for a third-party anti-slavery candidate. Before the defection, Clay would almost certainly have won the state and with it, the presidency. So, right, I mean, we had a pretty razor-thin majority in New York. Polk, though, considered this a mandate. He considered his election victory a mandate, and he thought that he had the political backing to do just about anything he wanted. And so uh, Polk will be very aggressive in his agenda. Again, this is where modern historians tend to like James K. Polk. He's an activist president. In fact, he had gaslights installed in the White House so he could work late into the evening. Whereas other presidents you know, called it a day and went to bed, Polk stayed up. Polk worked. He was at his desk. It's like the pictures we get of Joe Biden writing stuff at his desk. I'm working. Those are dangerous pictures. Because that's not... <laughs> we don't want the president working. Not that way. Because it leads to all kinds of dangerous things, like a war with Mexico. Now, would we have had the war with Mexico if Henry Clay wins in 1844? Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, Clay might have been interested in it as well, but we may not have had the war with Mexico. Maybe not till 1852. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. Would, would then have Zachary Taylor won in 1848 because there wouldn't have been a war with Mexico? There's no Whig candidate. Maybe Clay wins two terms. I have no idea. Maybe 1852, we still get a Democrat and we still get a war with Mexico. Maybe the war is postponed for a decade or more. I don't know. We, these, are, these are great big what-ifs. But certainly, Polk's administration is a, is a turning point in American history. I agree with that what Polk is going to do. It was, an, it was an inauspicious beginning, yet Polk would quickly emerge as probably the most successful president the United States has ever had to that date, according to historian Daniel Walker Howe. In presidential rankings, historians constant, consistently rank Polk in the top two quartiles, despite his deliberate decision to serve just one term. So presidential rankings, these things are important. Historians say Polk was great because he went out and did everything he was supposed to do. They may not like it, but he was he was an active guy. He knew what he was doing. He, the president was supposed to do these things. Again, that's actually an indictment on the Polk administration, not a compliment. As President Joe Biden deliberates on his own plans for 2024, it's worth revisiting the story of James K. Polk, a man who was underestimated at every turn, achieved remarkable success, success during his time in office, and became the first president to drop the mic after just four years. I mean, look at the language here. To drop the mic. Okay, there are compelling reasons for Biden to seek re-election, but should he choose not to, history suggests that he could elect to serve one term with his le legacy strongly intact. Shortly after taking office, Polk privately confided in George Bancroft, his story in a Democratic political fixer, his four priorities as president. By Bancroft's recollection, these goals were, one, the settlement of the Oregon, Oregon question with Great Britain. Now, again, this is an interesting point because Polk campaigned on 54-40 or 5, but that's not what we got. The acquisition of California in a large district on the coast, which we did get. This is Norman Gravener's thing. You know, it's Empire in the Pacific. This was Polk's secret mission. That's why he sent John Slidell to Mexico to buy it 
for a tremendous amount of money. The Mexican government refused. So Polk was very aggressive in starting a war. This is something that Calhoun pointed out was dangerous. In fact, Calhoun was pointing to Polk's presidency as a dangerous turning point with an executive that was off the rails, an executive that was unhinged and doing things that were completely unconstitutional. And I tend to agree with Calhoun. It's also important to note that Calhoun is the spokesman for the slave power, right? This is what people would say. Calhoun is the ardent expansionist, the slave power guy, and he was against the war with Mexico. He was against Mexican territory, the acquisition of Mexican territory. So if the slave power was so firmly rooted in acquiring territory, why would the, uh, why would the uh, unacknowledged spokesman, or at least what historians point to, John C. Calhoun, be against it? Now, you've got people like Matthew Carp out there running around saying, wait a second, he wasn't really against it. He wrote this and he didn't really vote against it. He might have said these things, but he didn't vote against it. So, uh, I mean, again, this is what these lefties are trying to do. They're still trying to attach Polk to it. I'm sorry, Calhoun to all this stuff because it would make the slave power thesis the dominant thesis in American history. All that we've done is just regurgitate that nonsense. The reduction of the tariff to a revenue basis, the complete and permanent establishment of the constitutional treasury, as he loved to call it, but as others had called it, the independent treasury. It was an audacious list. Having pledged to grant statehood to Texas, Polk now singled his intent to take California away from Mexico as well. Now, Texas became uh, a state before Polk took office. And I've always argued that this was probably because of Polk's election that this happened so quickly. Now, Tyler was president, and I think was a better president than James K. Polk. Tyler was president, outgoing, and he, was, he ensured that Texas would become a state before he left office. And if you ask people, it's John Tyler that brought Texas into the Union, not James K. Polk. But you could make a point that without the 1844 election, and without James K. Polk winning the 1844 election, Texas doesn't really come into the Union when it does. It might have still hung out there for a little while longer. If Henry Clay had been elected, Texas probably would not have come into the Union at that point. Maybe that wouldn't have been bad for Texas. Maybe we've seen independent Texas still. Polk now singled his intent to take California away. As I said, he would lower the tariff, which the previous administration had raised in an effort to promote American manufacturing. The previous administration. That's the Tyler administration. Now, Tyler had signed some things in the Whig agenda into law, but of course the tariff issue had been around for a long time. It wasn't just the previous administration. It was previous administrations. Um, but the Democrats had long been pledged to reduction of the tariff. This was not something that Polk was doing that was on his own agenda. Of course, Congress is the only one that can do this. But Polk singled, signaled a willingness to sign the, the bill into law. And he would settle once and for all the debate over whether the U.S. Treasury should deposit funds in private and public state banks, or as most Democrats preferred, hold the funds itself. We'd have an independent Treasury. This is something all kinds of people, I mean, Martin Van Buren wanted it, John C. Calhoun wanted it. There was really nobody better in this period of time on banking and finance and John C. Calhoun. He was excellent on it. We, we don't really know that about Calhoun, but he was really good on it. First, the administration undertook complicated negotiations over the Oregon Territory. There had long been an expectation that the U.S. and Britain would carve the territory up based on each country's prior claims and exploration. Britain proposed the Columbia River as the border. The U.S. ordered the 49th parallel, but signaled that if compelled to go to war, it would aim to draw the line at 54 degrees 40 minutes, which would grant it a larger claim. Polk walked a fine line. He rattled his saber to suggest a willingness to go to war with Britain, 
but with his eyes set firmly on California and Texas and the likely conflict that would invite with Mexico, he could not entertain a two-front conflict. At the same time, he could not alienate the northern public by appearing to concede land in Oregon while fighting for it in Texas. The U.S. and British ultimately signaled, uh, I'm sorry, signed a treaty drawing the border at the 49th parallel, a victory for Polk. Not so fast. It wasn't really a victory for Polk. It was a concession on Polk's part. He had said he was going 54-40. The 49th parallel had already been negotiated before Polk even took office. And then Polk did all these stupid things, and the British backed off. Okay, well, we're just not going to negotiate here. So going to 49 was a concession. It's what the British were willing to do, and that's what they finally did. This was not a victory for Polk. It was a concession. But it's seen as a victory, because if you don't know the history of the diplomacy here, 49 was what people have been pushing for a long time, and Polk gave up Vancouver Island. If you draw 49 straight out, you at least get part of Vancouver Island, and there was some talk about the United States getting Vancouver Island. So there, I mean, this was not really a victory for the United States. It was a concession based on Polk's positions in 1844. A concession. We have to look at it that way. That's the important thing about this. Not long after the ink was dry on the Oregon Treaty, Polk sent the army to Texas to enforce a congressional resolution admitting the Republic into the United States. Polk, who campaigned on Texas statehood and privately aimed to annex California, would soon accomplish far more than that. The U.S. won the ensuing war with Mexico in a route, bringing the country into possession of lands that later formed all or part of modern-day Texas, California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming. Now, he sent the army into Texas. That's a little bit of a misnomer. He sent the army into Mexico. They crossed the Nueces River, which, of course, the Mexican government claimed was the border and sent them to the Rio Grande, which the United States said was the border. So it depends on who you ask. You could say he sent the mar army into Mexico. You could make that case. And this was a very aggressive mood. And, of course, when the United States army is shot at, and American blood has been shed on American soil, as Polk says in his war message to Congress in 1846. There is a little bit of a dubious claim. This is more like George W. Bush in looking for weapons of mass destruction than anything else. It's aggressive, and he was called out for it. But of course, we do get the war. On the domestic front, Polk was no less successful. He secured congressional approval for, of lower tariff rates and the establishment of an independent treasury. The latter innovation put to end a long-running debate over the wisdom and propriety of a national bank. Debate that's been raging since the 1820s. I mean, the date there is hilarious. Since the 1820s? <laughs> Try the 1790s. 1791, in fact. Then we get the, the bank goes away in 1811. Then we get a second bank in 1816. And that one goes away in 1836. Then we have... This, this mess of, you know, what are we going to do with the bank? Or what are we going to do with central banking? The funny thing is, of course, that independent treasury, that, that we do get a national bank during the Lincoln administration, the National Banking Acts. It's a modified national bank within the structure of the independent treasury, but it's still a national bank. And it does stay in place, as the piece says, until the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. But this didn't end anything. The Whigs and later Republicans kept the pressure on, and they basically got what they wanted, which was another central banking system. In the 1860s, 
we missed that part of the war. But the Republicans were able to, to foist the Hamiltonian system on the American public in the 1860s, whether it was through protective tariffs, federally funded internal improvements, or central banking. We got it all in the 1860s. There was no South to block any of this stuff anymore. Why would the South want to block that stuff? Well, because it's all unconstitutional works against their political economy. Two reasons. So you see, when you look under the, when you peel back the, the surface, right? And you say, it's slavery, slavery, slavery. And you peel back all the other stuff that's going on. Slavery is a convenient way. It's a big issue, of course. It's a powerful emotional issue for a lot of people. It's a, it's, but it's not the real issue. The real issue is all these other things under the surface. We know this because as early as 1794, New Englanders were talking about secession. True to his word, Polk, who had pledged to serve only one term in office, declined to run for re-election in 1848. He was the first president and remains one of just a few to step down voluntarily. On the one hand, Polk's presidency left an enduring influence. It's impossible to imagine an alternative reality in which the map of the United States stood frozen in 1844. At the same time, his territorial conquests led in no small way to the Civil War. Well, that's because of a bunch of blundering nincompoops in many ways. It didn't have to. It didn't have to. Since Congress enacted the Missouri Compromise in 1820, Americans had accepted an established faith that 36 degrees, 30 minutes parallel demarcated the line between the free and slave states. Below the line, slavery was permitted. Above it, it was banned. But the Missouri Compromise applied strictly to those territories that the United States had procured from France and the Louisiana Purchase. It had no bearing on the new lands that the United States acquired during the Mexican War. Since most of the Mexican session fell beneath the Missouri Compromise line, many Southerners naturally felt it ought to be open to slavery. Most Northerners disagreed. So who is really the problem here? Again, who was the problem? I think that Zeitz actually unknowingly, he, he's trying to say, well, I mean, this is, uh, you know, the, the, the North has got the right position here. Southerners are looking at this and saying, well, we'll just extend the line out. No big deal. It just goes out. We'll just cut it out to California. No, no, no. Northerners weren't going to let that happen. Why? Because they wanted the states. Because they know that if they get these states, they're going to win in Congress. You look at, of course, Southern position. We went out and bled and died for that land. The two most important generals were from the South, Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor. You had a tremendous Southern influence in this army. You also had Northerners as well. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. But Southern influence in the army, this was the common territory of the United States. Why should it be denied to them? They couldn't. This is the big constitutional question. Why should it be denied to them? And, and this is this is something that uh, they wrestled with in the 1840s and 50s. Foreseeing an inevitable conflict, Ralph Waldo Emerson <laughs> warned at the outset of the war that the United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man who swallows the arsenic, which brings him down in turn. Mexico will poison us. Events later proved Emerson, Emerson right. Some historians have observed that the 5,107 New York voters out of 15,812 who supported the anti-slavery Liberty Party switched their votes to the Whig candidate Henry Clay. Polk would have lost the presidential election. No Polk, no Mexican-American War. No Mexican-American War, no sectional crisis in the 1850s. Would the United States have maintained slavery in the 20th century? Well, Lincoln was certainly willing to do that. And uh, is the sectional crisis only because of, the, of slavery extension? Or is there something else going on here? We know that there are always conflicts, and it, a lot of it had to do with how people viewed the powers of the central government and what the central government could do. 
in terms of banking and in industry and tariffs. And these were big issues. Of course, we're not fighting over it, supposedly, but we almost had secession over it in the 1830s. So, A narrow calculus in a handful of swing states sent, sent Joe Biden to the White House as well. And he has surmounted the odds to rack up considerable wins in office. Despite narrow margins in Congress, he secured passage of key legislative items, including an infrastructure bill. Key passage because of one vote. One vote. Infrastructure bill. Funding to combat climate change. One of the things that people... I was speaking to HVAC guy the other day. This is going to be big. I think people are really going to get upset about this in the near future. Because... Uh, with your, if, particularly in the South, where people run a lot of air conditioning. Uh, if you're repairing or getting a new HVAC unit, the SEER rating has to go up tremendously, and it's going to cost thousands of dollars more just to get your house cooled now in the summer. It is going to be a tremendously expensive endeavor for people in the South. Now, Democrats really don't care about that because that's not their base. See, this is the same thing that you're seeing. They don't care about the cost for people that uh, want to use these things because that's they don't care. That's not their base at all. They, they're looking at people other places or other areas, and um, but this is going to be tremendously expensive. It's going to put a huge bill on cooling your home in the future. In terms of outfitting your home to, to cool. Now, on the on the backside of it, of course, more efficient HVAC unit is going to lower power bills, but Getting this going is going to be very expensive. A COVID stimulus and relief package and legislation protecting same-sex marriage. He assembled and has held together an international coalition in support of Ukraine. Well, wait a second. He's basically given Ukraine billions of dollars. We, we've, we've, we've funded the Ukrainian army. Not just with money, but also supplies and troops. Unknown, but we have those things there. And so that's not a coalition. He's sent money and supplies into Ukraine. And his party defied historical precedent by holding its own in the off-year elections. Those wins gave Biden ample reason to run for re-election. And there is a plausible case to be made that he is uniquely positioned to be his party's standard bearer in 2024. Consistently underestimated, he consistently overperforms. He may be the Democrats' best candidate. But Biden doesn't need to serve a second term to secure his legacy. He came into office with a clear set of goals, if nothing else, to restore certain norms and civilities in the White House. Yeah. We're not going to mean tweet, but we're going to do all these other things which are wrecking stuff in the United States. Like James K. Polk, he did what he set out to do. Should he choose to retire from public life, his historic reputation will likely not suffer for it. So we got to think about this. Joe Biden's got to think about his legacy before he runs. Again, look at the way that historians interpret the presidency. It's the legacy. It's what you're doing. It's X, Y, and Z. These are the things that are important. How people view you in the future is how uh, we think about the presidency now. But... Uh, Polk, I mean, going back to Polk, there's some things about Polk in this piece that are just completely wrong. But if you are a, a person, a, a modern historian who thinks the presidency has all of these powers, and Polk really is your guy in the 1840s. He's it. You look at all the other presidents in the 1840s, no one compares to Polk. You look at almost all the presidents in the antebellum period, no one really compares to Polk. He's your guy. He called himself Young Hickory, at least styled that. And he was he was a Jacksonian. He was Jackson's man. Old Hickory and Young Hickory. And uh, Polk was 
Um, seen as kind of an irascible character. Of course, Polk dies in 1849, very shortly after leaving office, within a few months. And it's because people think of the bad water that was around D.C. He got an intestinal infection and it never really healed, and then he, he dies. So you had a number of presidents die uh, within a short period of time after in the 1840s and 50s, and it was because of the night soil that was around the White House where they got their their uh, drinking water from. So uh, pretty awful. But anyways, um, that's my position on Polk. This is a great uh, article the listener sent me. So uh, I've got more to do, more listener-generated stuff, and I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.